name's Josh Stevens, and me and my wife Megan and our two little girls have been coming here since about June of last year, and we have been calling it home since then. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head, because he is the image and the glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of the woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. And the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if that is a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Josh. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up there to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses uh, 2 through 16. If you don't have a good Bible to read at home, I encourage you to get one at Guest Connections behind the sound booth there. That's where Susie will be after the service as well. But there's CSB study Bibles there. There's also back in the Bibles and Books resource area, there are CSB study Bibles which even with even more resources for you to be able to understand and uh, seek to apply and pray through the Word of God. And so I encourage you to grab those resources if that would be a blessing to you. The living and active Word of God is not only the supreme source of authority and truth on all matters of faith and godly living, it is also relevant for all time. Its truth can be applied to any point in history or culture. It was also written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Human authors who lived at a specific point in history and in a certain cultural context. 1 Corinthians was written around 55 AD. And so some of the issues that Paul's addressed in this letter seem absolutely foreign to us, like meat sacrificed to idols. And, and while that issue may seem distant from us, there are some timeless principles that we take from the living and active word and seek to apply. Apply to live out in our context for his glory and the good of those around us. As you heard from Josh's reading of today's text, the subject is around men and women, husbands and wives, length of hair and head coverings, and you might be thinking things like, boy, the Bible is just so utterly out of date, or it's so confusing to understand, or do I need to schedule an appointment with my barber or cosmetologist this week? Do I need to borrow a hair tie from somebody in this moment, in this gathering? Here's my hope this morning, to help us better understand the context in which Paul's writing so that we might be able to take from the text the timeless and true principles that do apply to us to separate the cultural practices in Corinth 
from the timeless principles that we are called to live out and reflect in our day. I believe this text will be an encouragement to all of us, especially husbands and wives. And this passage is written in parallel, so it's not just about women nor just about men, but both. Both are instructed and encouraged. On our website, under who we are, we have a document called our Statement of Convictions. On the front end of this message, I want to read to you our statement on the complementary roles of men and women. This sums up a lot of what this text is talking about. And I want to go ahead and put, put the cards on the table before we get into it to just help us grow in our understanding as we get into it. Men and women are image bearers of equal value and significance. Genesis 1 presents the fact that humankind, male and female, were made in the image and likeness of our God. Though the circumstances of their creation differed, the male and female persons shared equally in that image. Not only are the male and female equal in personhood, but they also find equality in dignity, value, and spiritual union with Christ. Indeed, all distinctions of race, rank, or sex are removed in Jesus Christ, and yet men and women are made different by God's design. Men and women are functionally distinct. God has ordained a role or functional distinction between equals, man and woman, in the area of authority and leadership in both the church and home. Man is the designated head. That truth, though, does not imply male superiority or validate sinful misuse within marriage. Nor does it mean that every man is head over every woman. Equality and submission are compatible as demonstrated by Christ in his submission to the Father, though he was equal with the Father. Such designation of authority in role relationships is necessary for the harmonious functioning of home and church and leads to both God's glory and our joy. I titled this message Distinct and Interdependent because I think these two words capture a lot of what Paul is trying to communicate to us. When we look at our world, it is clear that the world wants to remove both of those true realities. When it comes to gender, they want to eliminate distinction and ignore the creational order. The creational order that the Lord created man and woman in his image and likeness. As one author wrote, gender dis distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. The world also wants to remove the reality that the two genders are interdependent. So the world implies, well, men are superior to women, or women are superior to men. Or wives and husbands, they don't need one another. They should be fiercely independent of one another and not be dependent upon one another. Implying that men and women are opposed to one another in competitive ways rather than designed for complementary flourishing. Distinct and interdependent. In our look at this passage, we're after the central message of this text. The key, applicable, timeless principles. The principles that were there in the beginning in Genesis and that are they're there for us in today. There's a cultural distance between us and the Corinthians. What was common to them is, is strange to us. What is common to us would be utterly foreign to them. So when we look at a passage such as this, we must avoid either saying, well, none of this applies, and dismiss the Word of God, or on the flip side, avoid not taking into account the historical context and then legalistically pursue a strict adherence to Paul's words, and in doing so, we miss the underlying principle, the spirit. And the principles found in the Word of God are eternal. The outworkings, the application of them differ depending on the culture and the point of 
history that we are providentially placed into. So immediately before this section, Paul writes in verse 31 of chapter 10, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God, including how we live as godly men and women in the context of the church, in the context of the home. In the past few chapters, Paul has talked at length about how the church engages with the culture and lost people on mission. In the coming chapters, chapters 11 through 14, the subject becomes more internal about how the church worships together, how it is alongside one another and functions as the family of God, how it relates to one another. And there will be a variety of subjects that he, that he teaches on in this section. So whether we're talking our outward witness to the culture or our inward witness to one another as we worship alongside one another, in either case, our desire is 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whatever we do, we would bring him glory and not the glory of self. In this passage and the upcoming ones, one of Paul's thrusts is Corinthians. You're continually making it about yourself in the home, in the church, in worship gatherings. And so one thrust of Paul's teaching is saying, don't make it about yourself. Make it about your Savior. Bring him glory and don't seek to bring glory to yourself. Verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. This verse points forward to all the subjects that are going to be talked about in the coming weeks in chapters 11 through 14. It's a sentence of encouragement. Before he goes into correction and rebuke, he wants to build them up. Corinthians, you're holding fast. You're, you're growing up in the Lord. You're making progress. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. One quick note to dispel, to, to, uh, dispel misunderstanding. When Paul writes, the man is the head of the woman, Paul's talking about the context of Christian marriage. So he's not implying that the Lord commands that all women are subject to all men in all spheres of society. Most scholars believe the best way to understand the definition of head in the sentence is that of good and godly authority. And notice the sequence. It starts with men or husbands, then women or wives, and then comes back to father and the son, which then gives the first two relationships in that sequence, gives it context. It roots the first two in the picture of the Trinity. And in the Trinity, we see distinction between the father, son, and spirit. We also see equality, equal in essence and being. The son's essence wasn't less than the father. The son has a different role or function from the father, but is not an inferior person. See, the world assumes if the function is different, then the essence must be. If the function is different, then equality must not be. So in that case, the world goes, well, if the function is different, then that means women are inferior. But in the Trinity, we see that one can possess a different function and still be equal in worth and essence. And the Son joyfully submits to the Father. So we, as followers of Jesus, when we submit our lives to Him, it's not a sign of weakness, but of strength, humility, and trust. Trust in Him as our head, as the good and godly authority, the good shepherd's authority in our lives. Being under doesn't mean inferior or less than, because it doesn't in the Trinity. Ephesians 5 speaks to the same principles as, as verse 3 here. So starting in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, 
It says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. The roles of a husband and wife in the context of a Christ-centered marriage are to be shaped by Jesus' relationship to his church. And there's nothing dictator-like or passive or indifferent, rebellious, or proud in Jesus' relationship to his church. He gives of himself completely in order to save his bride. He gives of himself for the good of his bride, and his bride responds in love to the sacrificial love of the groom. There should be a mutual self-giving environment in a a marriage that is seeking to glorify God, the designer and creator of marriage itself. Husbands, you are the head in your marriage. The question is not if you are. The question is, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful and humble before the Lord Jesus in that role? Will you be faithful like Christ or absent and passive like Adam? Will you sacrifice like Jesus or will you live self-centered like the world? Will the reality of leadership in the home shape your way of life, creating in you an utter dependence upon the Lord? Because you know that you cannot do it apart from Him. Brothers, your wives should flourish under your selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like leadership. Much like the church flourishes under the good shepherding of Jesus, wives should as well. In Jesus, we see a voluntary, willing, joyful submission to the Father. The posture of Jesus should characterize both Christian husbands and wives. Submission is called upon for both. And so knowing Jesus is our shared goal or model, then neither husbands nor wives should drift toward a passive or an aggressive or a passive-aggressive posture, none of which Jesus was, none of which Jesus is. Wives, are you in a way that reveals that your ultimate trust is in Jesus? Are you joyfully following your husbands? Are you praying for your husbands and their growth in the Lord? Are you communicating what you need and desire as it relates to spiritual leadership in the home? Or are you hoping he's going to get it right by guessing, by reading your mind? Are there heart sins such as self-righteousness, bitterness, or anger that are inhibiting your joy in the home? These questions I ask of husbands and wives are, are to do two things. Provoke conversation for you when you leave this place. Probably not right now. Maybe over a good meal when the world is not pressing in on you. It's also caused, uh, my desire is to cause a sweet spirit of repentance in husbands and wives. Not one or the other. But good, grace-filled conversation 
and sweet repentance lavished in grace following. At the end of the day, we all know that we will fall short of the perfection laid out in Ephesians 5. And where husbands and wives fall short, there is abundant grace. Grace that doesn't justify or excuse sin, but rather grace that transforms, it heals, it changes us. Oftentimes the world wants to try to remove these realities of headship and submission because of the abuse of them. Assuming that if you remove the distinction, then the abuse won't occur. That the abuse is inevitable because of the creation order, so it goes, but rather abuse is there because of the human heart that is desperately sick with sin apart from the gospel. The distinction of male and female were part of God's creation that he declared was good in Genesis. It was the sin of humanity, Genesis 3, that led to the breaking, the distorting of God's good design, a design that was for the good and the flourishing of people. It's the sin of man that somehow twists the, the, the good creation order and turns it to be self-centered and toward actions such as abuse or domineering power in either a husband or a wife. Rather, when rightly understood in the context of the Trinity and Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for the church, a husband and wife can flourish in their distinct roles for the good and joy of one another and the glory of God. That was a whole lot on verse 3. We won't go that slow the rest of the way. Verses 4 through 6. See, we got three verses right here. Every man, or prays, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, let her head be covered. So the issue that Paul's addressing is that of the dress of the people in the worship gathering. Some men were wearing head coverings and are growing their hair out long in a way that reflected the attire worn by pagans in idolatrous worship at the time. They were doing so in an attempt to look like the idolatrous culture rather than be distinct or set apart from it. Some women were deliberately avoiding the common practice at the time to wear their hair up and or wear a covering of some sort on their head during worship. In the first century, head coverings were a culturally appropriate way of expressing the divine command for wives to honor their husbands. It was a way of celebrating, an outward way of celebrating the goodness of God's design. It was a reflection of modesty because hair was the chief element of female beauty at the time. So uncovered hair or hair let down was a form of seduction. So you had Corinthian sisters in Christ who were saying, we're done with these things. We want to be like the men. And we want to worship without these shawls on our heads. By not wearing one in worship, it was implying, I'm not really concerned about my relationship with my husband. This guy next to me, I really don't care about. I'm available. Same with letting down your hair. It was in the middle of a church gathering designed to glorify God. It was a woman saying to the other men in the room who were not her husband, I'm available. I don't really care about him. I care about me, so I'm available. And Paul is saying then to disregard a head covering, to let her hair down, she might as well have shaved her head. 
which at the time was an outward practice that was associated with either one who had committed adultery or the prostitutes of the city. As one commentator wrote, paraphrasing Paul's words, if you're going to forsake your head covering, just go all the way and shave your head and identify yourself with the women of the world. So Paul is saying, men, don't dishonor God by adopting idolatrous dress, dress in worship. Women, don't dishonor God and your husbands by adopting dress that calls your marital status into question. So the underlying root sin or issue that we learn is that in both men and women, they were seeking to glorify self or blend in with the world rather than seeking to glorify the one who had saved them and to be set apart from the world. The timeless principle that we carry forward to today is, is our desire as men and women to find culturally recognizable ways of maintaining and celebrating the goodness of God's design. Paul is affirming in both husbands and wives, your role is valuable. It's necessary. You don't have to act like the world to find your worth. You don't have to act like the other gender to find your value. The Lord, in His infinite wisdom, didn't make a mistake when He fearfully and wonderfully made you. There are differences between men and women, but there is no disgrace in those differences. Nor do those differences diminish your participation in the family of God. Notice there's an assumption here from Paul that women will pray and prophesy in the gathering, which was unheard of in that culture. For instance, in the Jewish synagogue, women were not considered full members and were required to sit behind a veil. And so the question is not if they will pray and speak in the gathering, but how. If they pray and prophesy, then they must do so in a way that doesn't reject God's good design and distinction between the roles of men and women, but celebrates and honors those distinctions. So to the Corinthian sisters, let your outward dress reveal your, your inward heart's posture a heart that is tender toward the Lord, tender toward your husband, and is pursuing faithfulness in those relationships. I'm grateful for the godly women who participate in our worship gathering, from calling us to worship, to leading on the worship team, to praying, to reading scripture, to sharing testimony. I'm grateful for the godly men who participate in our worship gathering, from leading on the worship team, to reading scripture, to praying, to preaching and teaching the word, to sharing testimony. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in unity, in unity, seeking to glorify not themselves, but the Lord, and reveal th through their words, their way of life, our shared submission to Him. Verses 7 through 10, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The phrase, a man should not cover his head. In that day, for a man to wear a head covering in worship was saying to those around him, including his wife, I'm shirking off. I am dismissing my responsibility to lead in the home and in the church. It was to follow in the passive pattern of the first Adam who said, I'm not accountable, that's her fault. She gave it to me. It's blame-shifting at its best. It was, in a sense, hiding his headship and in doing so, declaring, I'm an authority unto myself. 
I'm not submitted to Jesus. I'm not submitted to anyone but myself, even though Jesus is the head and authority of, of the church. Brothers, may that not be said of us. May we not hide from or cast off our responsibility to be servant leaders in our homes, but may we do so for the glory of God and the good of our households. Verse 7, Paul says, woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that woman is not the glory of God. Rather, she is both the glory of her creator and her husband. It doesn't mean she's inferior or less than. Because again, we look at the Trinity. And according to Hebrews 1.3, it says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So the Son is not less than the Father. And at the same time, the Son brings the Father glory. On June 8th, 1996, before the Lord, friends and family, Heather and I committed ourselves to one another in marriage. While I didn't have this verse in mind at the time, I really just wanted to get to the honeymoon. But besides that, looking back, my wife was my glory. Now, I'm not just talking about outward beauty. Proverbs 31 makes it really, really clear that inward beauty is unchanging. It's glorifying to God. But it was that the glory of her character, the, the endless good that she had brought to my life up to that point, and over nearly 27 years of marriage, the endless good that she has brought to my life and to those around us over the, all the seasons of marriage. In the Gospels, we see the Father delights over the Son at His baptism, saying, this is my beloved one and only Son. In the same way, husbands should delight over their wives, their one and only wife. I delight over my wife, my beloved one and only wife. I delight over her Christ-likeness and the fruit of the Spirit in her life, her grace and truth that she has shown to me and others, her faithfulness. I delight over her joyful endurance, her wisdom, her sacrifice, her obedience to the Lord. Heather, you are my glory. You are my glory. I thank God for you. In verses 8 and 9, Paul takes the Corinthians back to Genesis. Notice that Paul doesn't appeal to the cultural patterns of what is around, around them to be the foundation of the motivation for them to change and grow. He's got to take them back to something that doesn't change. He's got to take them back to the creation story. See, we all have to ground ourselves in what is eternal, not temporary, because cultures change. What honor looks like to the Kuyu people in Papua New Guinea is going to be, look different than here in the Midwest when we say ope, right? <laughs> the point of Paul's writing is not the outward practices. It's the timeless principles that should rule our hearts. And in the creation story, there was a sequence to creation. Adam was created first. Woman is created from Adam's side as a helper, as companionship, as community. Adam names the woman. God holds Adam fundamentally responsible for the sin and rebellion. And so the head covering for the Corinthian women was an outward symbol that revealed their inward trust in God's good design of male and female, the distinctions of role and function. Distinct and interdependent. And that next word, interdependent, is where Paul goes next in verse 11. In the Lord, he writes, however, woman is not independent of of man, and man is not independent of woman. 
For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. So yes, the first woman was built from the side of man. Since then, every man has entered this world through a woman. And Paul is saying there is mutual need for one another. Again, in the historical context of 55 A.D., the thought that men and women, husbands and wives, were interdependent, it was unheard of. One author wrote, Without the rest of Christian teaching, some might conclude from the preceding passage that men bear no responsibility to honor their wives in worship. Others might think that wives bear no direct relationship to the Lord. Paul wanted to make clear in verse 11 that such assumptions have no basis in his teaching. Neither husbands nor wives are independent of one another. So the goal in Christian marriage is not to give your vows to one another and then for the rest of your lives live self-directed, self-sufficient, self-governing, independent lives. Operating under the same roof, but that's it. Rather, the goal as husbands and wives is to be unified with one another in the same way the Father, Son, and Spirit are. Brothers, don't wrongly think that headship implies independence from your wife. If you're not seeking her discernment, her counsel, her wisdom in life, you're proud. You're proud. And according to Proverbs 15.22, your plans will certainly fail. Sisters, don't wrongly think that submission is passivity or passive-aggressive indifference of, well, your call and then it goes south, and you're like, well, you really screwed that up, didn't you? And you shift the blame, just like Adam and Eve did. Author Joe Rigney wrote, our differences are not merely differences from each other, but they're actually differences for each other. The Lord has graciously given to you one another to no longer operate as two, but operate as one, one flesh union, seeking to bring glory to the one who created the union and is transforming you day by day. Verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Again, we take the historical context into account. And for a woman to have her head uncovered or her hair let down in a worship gathering was a glory to self. It was not a glory to her Savior. For men to have long hair was a sign that he was seeking to assimilate with the idolatrous culture and not be distinct from the culture for the glory of his Savior. In verse 16, Paul is calling the churches to avoid being contentious, especially because other churches of God have adopted these customs according to God's truth. So Corinthians, if you want to take to Twitter and argue about this, Paul's saying, I'm not going to join in. I'm not going to at you on something. These are ancient principles that New Testament churches are called to live out in their context, applying and living Applying the living and active, timeless principles of the Word of God, that is our goal as Christ followers. At the same time, avoiding legalistic application of some of the practices that were common in the context of the Scriptures. Distinct and interdependent. Kathy Keller writes, Justice in the end is whatever God decrees. 
So whether or not you are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you trust, how much trust you have in God's character. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? And if God can be trusted, then gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says this, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Paul is not removing distinction in those words. He's placing a new identity at the beginning of the sentence, that identity of being in Christ. You belong to Christ, and you are part of God's eternal family, a family throughout all history, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Loved ones, you've been fearfully, wonderfully made by the Creator who loves you. He's made you in His image and likeness. You don't have to chase your identity and how the world suggests that we chase it. Because the cultural goal is always moving. It is a gerbil wheel to say the least. It's always moving because it's not anchored to anything that's ancient. It's not anchored to absolute truth. It's just anchored to the moment. In a world that is loudly clamoring and competing for what will be the first description of your identity. That first spot in the sentence, hi, my name is, and I'm a... They're clamoring for that first spot They're battling for that. They're yelling about it. Galatians 3 reminds those who are in Christ, in Christ is what leads the sentence. We belong to Christ. So it's not our ethnic heritage. It's not our background. It's not our political party. It's not our gender. It's not our old creation resume and all the things we've walked through. It's not our athletic or academic gifts or, hi, my name is, and I'm in Christ. I belong to Him He's purchased me back. I live for him. And that shapes everything else. Everything else. It transforms everything that follows, every comma afterwards. And in Christ, this unified, unique gathering of saints living distinctly, interdependently, together we seek to bring glory to the one who's brought us together and who will hold us fast in this life, who will bring us into eternity for His glory to enjoy His presence for all of life. He's a good God. Be trusted in all things. May we bring Him glory in whatever we do. Lord Jesus, thank You for fearfully and wonderfully knitting us together. In Christ, we belong to You. In Christ, You have set us free from having to chase our identity in this world. I thank You for this local faith family, these gathered brothers and sisters who are seeking to live out our distinct and interdependent roles in a way that would make much of you and not us, both in the church and in our homes and in the context in which we live. Strengthen marriages in the coming days. Our desire as your church is to willingly, humbly, joyfully, and daily submit ourselves to you and your altogether good and loving authority in our lives. May you increase and we decrease for our joy, for our good, and for the joy and good of those around us. Be glorified in your church. Be glorified in our households. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.